Our scripture this morning is from Luke 3, 15 to 17, and then 21 and 22. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, I should turn my mic on, there we go, concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I'm not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my son, the beloved, with you, I am well pleased. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Um, may your word be like a seed planted in our hearts. And may it find soil there in which to grow and thrive and bear good fruit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, it's the new year, and days are growing longer. At home, where I uh, often work on sermons, it's sort of like a ground-level kind of room, and I can look out the window, and I can see a whole bunch of dead plants. Lots of dead plants. Right now, they have little um, hats made of snow on top of the stalks because of the, just, the snow we just had. Um, but they're all, they're all hollow, they're all brown, they're not coming back, they're not perennials. Um, but they all, on the very tip, are full of seeds. And these seeds are, of course, you know, the sign of what's going to come in the spring. Uh, it's not the spring yet, but in them they carry the life of what we see in the spring. And all this is a reminder of what um, Benedict said uh, 1,600 years ago, Always we begin again. Always we begin again. And so this morning I want to take some time to look at what that means to begin again by looking at two beginnings, two important beginnings. Uh, the beginning of Jesus' ministry and the beginning of the church. Not just this church, but the church, capital C Church. Um, and actually the first three centuries, not just the book of Acts. And by looking at these, I want to explore what it looks like for the church, not just our church, but the whole church, to begin again. Let's start with the early church. And uh, I'd like to do this in a kind of creative way. Um, another uh, uh, an expert in the early church, his name was um, Gregory Dix. He, he sort of imagined, he, he was from England, and he sort of imagined what it would be like for the early church um, to, to be in modern-day London. And so I kind of wanted to imagine it for modern-day Fort Collins or, or maybe just modern-day America. So this is what it might look like for the early church to exist right now. And imagine you're in it. Imagine you're a part of this community. 
So you're getting ready for work one morning, you get up quite early and you work at, you know, maybe you work at a business or a garage or a school. Um, maybe you, you know, you work for the city or, or you sell honey or whatever it is. But you're getting up early and you get up a little bit extra early so you have time to stop by a friend's house. They're expecting you, but you have to sneak in anyway through the back. And there's a large fellow at the back door and you, you know him, you guys exchange looks, but he's still a little bit intimidating. He's the deacon. He's eyeing everyone who comes in and he's eyeing them very, very carefully to make sure that they're known. Finally, you're in and it's a very large house. It's only one of the few who can accommodate everybody. But not everyone is there. You notice that an old friend is missing. Someone who's there all the time, but not there this time. And this is concerning because you know that the state was interested in having a conversation with her. So you mutter a prayer for her as someone brings out the bread, breaks it, shares it with you and everyone else who's there. Then there's a time of prayer, some teaching. There's an ongoing debate that happens pretty much every week about whether or not God changes. On the one hand, if he can change, well, he probably can't be God, can he? But on the other hand, what does that mean for, but if, but if he doesn't change, what does that mean for Jesus? Maybe Jesus isn't actually a change in God, but a clearer picture of who God is. The debate goes on. It even gets a little bit heated. Some people move further away from each other in the room, but you're all still in there together. You're only tuning in and out though, because you're worried about your friend and you're thinking about her and where she is. But you also notice this kind of shifty guy way in the back. And, and no offense to people who sit in the back. Whenever I visit a church, I always sit in the back. I'm, I feel like the shifty people are the people who sit in front. But, um, but uh, and no offense, well, we don't have anybody in the front. So there you go, there's no shifty people in here. But you're, you're sitting there and you notice this kind of shifty guy in the back, he's over by the bookcase and, and uh, hasn't said anything, he's only come a couple of times. And, then, and, and while, you're, while you're wondering about this fellow in the back who doesn't speak, the owner of the house says that um, uh, she and her husband have opened up the basement to some undocumented Venezuelans. And they're staying there right now, they're refugees from Venezuela. And so everybody gets to work and says, okay, what are we gonna do? And so they work out childcare, they work out funding, they work out um, uh, food and, and even um, some form of employment. And they spend quite a while trying to get this all sorted out. At some point in this conversation, the guy in the back, you notice, puts his hand into his jacket pocket and you think, oh no, this is it. We've been found out. But instead of pulling something threatening from his jacket, he pulls out a stack of papers, stands up, walks to the center of the gathering, plops them down and you realize they're all forged papers for the Venezuelans so that they can move around in society. At the end of the meeting, everybody leaves separately, exiting by separate entrances onto different streets and you've parked almost a mile away. The sun is only just risen and then it's off to work. You go to work, come home, cook supper, eat with the family and a few others, clean up, help with homework, say a prayer, fall asleep. That's 
pretty close to what it might have been like in the early church. If I've, if I've not adequately pictured anything, it's probably that it was more dangerous than this, and also that it was probably more joyful than what I was able to depict. Now I'd like to move on to the beginning of Jesus's ministry while holding in our imaginations the beginning of the church. And I want to see how these two necessarily overlap and really how what we've just imagined depends on the beginning of Jesus's ministry at his baptism. Jesus' baptism wasn't like anybody else's. Um, All baptisms are a kind of a beginning. You know, whether it's a washing away of sins or whether it's the symbolism of a new life being born again. Um, Jesus's was a little bit different, though, because in Jesus's baptism, the father says a very important sentence or a couple sentences that say quite a bit about who Jesus is. And the sentence he utters is this. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased or in whom I'm delighted. Now, this sentence may not sound like much, but it's a reference to two very important parts of the Old Testament. One is Psalm 2 and the other is Isaiah 42. And those are the two parts that tell us two very important things about Jesus. Listen to this in Psalm 2. This is just a section of Psalm 2. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord has the rulers in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. That's from Psalm 2, and what it's, the basic message is that the first thing that is revealed is not news, It wouldn't have been news to the Jews, but it's important to get right that God is supremely other than his creation. Supremely other. When he looks down at the rulers, the powers on the earth, any powerful force we can imagine, when he looks down, he laughs. He says, I'm beyond all of this. Any political power, any natural power, whatever we can imagine, God has nothing in common with his creation. We have more in common with a paper cup than we have in common with God. So that's the first thing this says about Jesus. The second thing it says is this, Isaiah 42, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be crushed until he has established justice in the earth. What Isaiah 42 is revealing is this, that if God is totally beyond creation, if God doesn't need creation, if he's not locked in a battle with creation, then the only reason any of this exists is out of sheer love, sheer love. What it means is that when Jesus shows up, he shows us not a detour in God's life. Jesus doesn't reveal like a plan B. You know, God wasn't like eternally dozing in heaven, you know, just 
just sort of enjoying his like etern eternity. And then he looked down and he says, oh my goodness, look what a mess the humans have made. Jesus, can you, can you go and just take care of this? Can you fix this, please? This is a disaster. That would be a God who is dependent somehow on creation, who's sort of overly connected and locked in a battle. No, instead, God, because of who God is, decides to reveal himself in the face of Jesus. And when Jesus is fully revealed, he's revealed as someone who is love. Nothing but love. Love not as a plan B, but love as the plan A. And the kind of love that brings justice on the earth, the kind of love that builds peace, the kind of love that reconciles people, a concrete kind of love, not just a feeling. All of this can be summed up in three important words. Jesus is Lord. When we say Lord, we don't mean that in a devotional sense, even though it's fine to use it that way. But it's meant in that Psalm 2 sense. It's meant actually politically. Like I said earlier, Caesar was considered Lord. Lots of people are considered Lord. The master of the house was considered Lord. And so to call Jesus Lord is to say he's Lord of all the Lords. He's the highest authority. There is no higher. So Jesus is not a detour. Jesus is not a side of God that he happens to have. Jesus is the clearest revelation of who God is that we can ever get. What that means is that God loves us in spite of having nothing in common with us. Love without condition. He doesn't like us because we sort of look like him. He doesn't like us because we did some good things. He loves us simply because that is who God is in his character. Now, for the early church, it took about three centuries to really hammer out the implications of this. But that didn't stop them from living it out and even dying for it. So a few things are worth noticing about the early church and about what this means for us as a church. One, it was clear that if God loves people who he has nothing in common with, we should try to do the same. This is why they couldn't reconcile military service for, as an example. So the early church would not serve in the military. And the reason why is because they could not imagine killing somebody for whom Jesus had died. They had nothing in common with the enemy, nothing in common at all. But that didn't matter because God loves people with whom he has nothing in common. And so they couldn't imagine killing somebody with whom they had nothing in common. They couldn't imagine killing an enemy. And so they didn't. This is also why they shared belongings so much. We're a little uncomfortable with these parts of the Old Testament where it says they all got together and shared their belongings. You know, we just, we just immediately imagine the 60s. Long hair, swing, kumbaya, lots of guitars. But that's not what was going on at all. It was just a very practical way of caring for people who were in trouble. They looked around and they said, wow, there's a lot of people suffering. What are we going to do? Well, our resources are limited. Not if you pool them. Not if you put them together. You have, all of a sudden, you have a lot more resources. And then we can help more poor people. We can help more people who are sick. We can help more widows. We can help more infants who have been abandoned at the garbage dump. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that they solved all these problems. 
problems. They weren't able to do that. But what they did do is they were able to be with everyone who was in trouble. Everyone they saw, they were able to be with them and no one died alone, no one suffered alone. Second implication, um, when the early church was engaged with Rome, they didn't try to overturn Rome. They didn't try to uh, cause some sort of insurrection or rebellion. Instead, when it came to Rome, they had already gone through a revolution and the revolution was in Jesus. So they would say to Rome, look, we're happy to pray for the ruler. We're happy to pay our taxes, but our highest authority is Jesus. Jesus is Lord and that's Lord above you. Rome was obviously unhappy about this. I mean, they needed soldiers for one, um, but it was deeper than that. They needed someone to worship. They needed their people to worship the Caesar. And to have a group of people not worshiping the Caesar was a major problem to their authority. And so that's why so many early Christians were killed. For the early church, Jesus was more than the Lord of their heart. He was Lord of all nations, rulers, powers, and governments. And the people were citizens of that kingdom. Years later, um, the situation would change. Uh, Christianity became the state religion in the fourth century. And so the church was no longer a seed in this hostile environment. Parts of it had become fully grown, but also parts of it were beginning to die. Parts of Christianity were becoming unrecognizable. Constantine may have said he was a Christian, or he, he actually he didn't convert to his deathbed, but he may have said that Christianity was the state religion, but he sure acted like a non-Christian emperor, like his predecessors. And so what happened? Somebody named Benedict and some other folks fled to the desert. And in the desert, they said, we must begin again. And they did. And that was the beginning of what we now call the monastic movement or the desert fathers and mothers. And that has happened over and over and over again through the history of the church. There have been times when church was a seed and it was beginning again and then it would grow and then something would become corrupt and something would die and, and, and then someone would take the seed, which is Jesus is Lord, and they would begin again. In 1934, the Swiss theologian Karl Barth, who was teaching in Germany, gave a talk on the situation between Germany and the church. 34, okay, so right before World War II. But by then, um, the marriage between the church and um, Nazi socialism was um, complete. The church was cozying up to the state and to be a Christian, a good Christian in Germany meant that you were also a good German and you followed Hitler. It meant that you felt like Germany was God's country and that God had uniquely blessed Germany. Karl Barth and others like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and other people. In 1934, he's giving a talk to a bunch of people who aren't Germans. He's talking to some British theologians, American theologians. And, uh, and he says, you know, I know what you're all thinking. You're all thinking, you're all looking at Germany and saying, I'm glad I'm not like them. What a terrible situation in Germany. And he says, I assure you that this can happen to you. And if it does, it will be the end of the road. 
He goes on to say, in Germany, we have learned by experience that the one thing that offered a chance to face the real enemy and refuse his claim was the simple message, God is the only helper. Another way to say that is Jesus is Lord. It was the either, it was the simple either or which was refused a while ago. Learn in time what may here be learned. You are still soldiers in the barracks. Real firing has not yet begun for you. Someday you may be called to the front line. Perhaps there you will remember our discussion. You may then gain a better understanding of what you do not seem to be able to grasp today. One-sidedness will be your only chance. And again, by one-sidedness, he just means this, that Jesus and only Jesus is Lord. There is no other. That was the only way for the church to begin again, as it always has been and is our only chance today. So one or two implications for today. The seed of faith grew in the early church, not just by writing books, not just through theological conferences, it grew through practice. They really understand what Jesus as Lord meant by practicing what that meant in real life. They didn't wait to get their theology right. They knew it at least meant love without condition. And so they got busy. Without practice, I don't think they would have been able to clarify it and write it down. And so when we talk about things like the creeds or, you know, councils in the fourth and fifth centuries, we're talking about people who went through centuries of persecution to say what they ended up writing down and saying. That's why those creeds are worth um, paying attention to. We cannot wait around to love without condition, to love despite the risk. The work of concrete love must be practiced now. If Christians organize, it's not to gain influence in the halls of power, but to practice the kinds of compassion and peacemaking that reveal God's love in the world. Second, the practice of love depended on that confession of faith. Their practice would have veered off course had they not gathered to break bread, confess with their mouths that Jesus is Lord, especially when they were under the threat of execution. And so we need to gather, not only to think through the implications of that confession, but to just say it. We have to gather to say it. Jesus is Lord, to thank God that Jesus is Lord and that no one else is, and to offer our desires and prayer to the Lord and to bless this Lord and none other. None of this can be done alone. If we struggle, it is with ourselves. The early church didn't always get it right and neither will we. But the church has always returned again and again to the delight God has for Jesus and the delight God has for everyone Jesus has made a sister and a brother. And so we say again and again, Jesus is Lord and begin again. Amen. Let's pray. Father, may this word be a seed to help us begin again. planted in our hearts. May your spirit let it grow. 
nourish us with the bread and the cup and with fellowship with one another. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Now may the peace of Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness and protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. And may he bring you home rejoicing once again into these doors. Amen. Go in peace.